0: are here, whether you are a long-time member or you're visiting, uh, we hope that you would find welcome and the love of God here at our church. Uh, My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this summer we began our series after Easter in the book of Acts, looking at the story of the church. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 9. But if you don't, we also have Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. And you could use one of those church Bibles. You can turn to page 917 Um, But we also will have it on the screen for you to follow along with us as we read the scriptures here. As we look at this chapter, Acts 9 verses 1 through 19, what we see here is a conversion. And it's probably the most important conversion of the history of the church. Not because of of how important Saul or Paul is and how I might Interchange those words during my sermon this morning. Saul becomes Paul later on. Um, But the reason it's probably the most important conversion of all time is because of the ripple effects that brings about the course of history in the church. And not just because of the way Christianity spreads around the world, but because Paul becomes the author of 13 of the books here in the New Testament. And as we look at this, I think the other aspect of conversion, one when one is not a follower of Jesus and becomes a follower of Jesus, the other thing we have to see here is that I think sometimes we can read this chapter and go, man, I wish my conversion was like this. Or all conversions should look like this, where there's a blinding light and a vision, and you are completely drastically changed from one second to another. But well, we see throughout Scripture that there's all different kinds of paradigms for conversion, right? The different, we saw one last week where the Ethiopian eunuch is just reading the Scriptures, just doing a Bible study, and he comes to faith and is converted to follow Jesus. But what we see throughout all these different conversions is that there are these ingredients that are similar, and those are the paradigms we want to be able to look at, and that's what we're going to look at. So I'm going to invite Drew Wass to come on up and read the passage for us. And we're going to read just the first 19 verses of chapter 9. So let's give attention to God's Word as Drew reads for us this chapter, Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Drew. Pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks for your word to us, and we thank you for the ways that you worked in Saul's life, and the Holy Spirit that is still the same this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit that changed the life of Saul to Paul, and was so instrumental to the growth of the church, that same spirit, Lord, would it work in our hearts, so that we might be transformed and changed to become more like you in the places that You have called us to be. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I studied this passage, I kept asking myself, do people change? I know this is a question that many of us wrestle with and maybe points of conversation that you have with friends or neighbors or coworkers or even your own family. Do people change? And I'm not just talking about preferences. Like when I met my wife, she only loved chicken. But then after she met me, she began to love steak, seafood. She likes light roast coffee beans now and drinks coffee black. I'm a proud husband. But that's not the kind of change I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about real whole person change from the inside out. Do people actually change? Now... There's a TV show that I've been following that concluded last Sunday or maybe two Sundays ago called Ted Lasso. Now, I'm, I'm not going to recommend it to everybody. Maybe it, it would require some mature audience and I wouldn't recommend it to my maybe some of my younger girls. But it ended and the in the last episode, it asked the question, do people change? And a specific character asked this. He says, I've been trying to change, but apparently... I'm the worst because I'm still me. I wanted to be someone better. Can people change? And within this small group of staff and and coaches one responded saying I don't think we change per se as much as we learn to accept who we've always been. And another person chimed in and said I think people can change sometimes for the worst And sometimes for the better. And this assistant coach that asked the question to begin with responds by saying, not me. I've been the same idiot I've always been. Do people change? Here in this story this morning, we see change. We see transformation. And it impacts not only the church, but our world. Do people change? And I would say yes. And it's through this beautiful story of conversion. And when we ask this question, the Christian worldview must answer that with a yes, a resounding yes. As we look at this story, not to say that this is the only way change happens, but we see throughout Scripture that there's a specific, specific ingredients that bring change and transformation about. You might be sitting here this morning and you might be tormented like the character in Ted Lasso saying, I'm just that idiot. I will never change. Or you're looking at people in your life that are very important to you, family members, your children, your parents, your friends, loved ones. And you say, Will they ever change? I want them to come to follow Jesus. Can this ever happen? The answer is yes, but we have to look at exactly what does that look like in the way that God works in our lives through the work of the Spirit to bring about transformation, conversion, and change. So four things. Go through them quickly. but It'll be God's initiative, God's self-revelation, God's grace, and God's family. So let's begin here with God's initiative. As we began this story, what do we read? We read that Paul or Saul is going to Damascus, or yeah, to Damascus to what? To worship Jesus, right? No, that's not what's happening at all. What do we read? In the opening verses, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Paul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, and isn't that fascinating? They weren't called Christians yet, or Christian, but it was the way. Why? Because of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now two weeks ago, we, we were introduced to Saul. This isn't the first time we read about him, right? Right? In the stoning and the martyr of Stephen, we see Saul in the background giving approval to Stephen's stoning and his death. And with his approval, we read that Luke says Paul was ravaging the church. He was this beast destroying and tearing apart Christians all over Jerusalem. And into Damascus, 150 miles away, which would take a week's travel. He was convinced that after watching the martyr or the killing of Stephen, this was his primary purpose in life. To get rid of all those that were following Jesus and profess Jesus as God. He was doing God's work. And by seeing the blood of Stephen, it gave him his purpose and mission in life. To not just bring back people to imprison them, but to bring them to trial like Stephen and to kill every Christian, and rid of all Christians on earth. And it's in this situation that God initiates. God is the one who pursues Saul. He's not even wrestling. Whether Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not even debating or a skeptic. He is outright a murderer wanting to kill all Christians. And you might read this and go, well, you know, he must have been this brute or this animal. But no, he was a well-educated man. He, taught under, he was taught under Gamaliel the greatest teacher of all time. He knew the scriptures inside and out. He knew who God was. He knew the way of the people. He understood the Old Testament inside and out. And as an educated, powerful man who was influential as a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he professes, he was out for blood to kill every Christian. And it's in that context, God initiates and wants to meet Saul on the road to Damascus. I don't know about you, but that is an absolutely absurd thing to think about. That God would come and meet a man who is killing his own beloved children. That God would want to initiate a relationship with Saul and begin to bring about transformation and change in his life. As I thought about God's initiative, you know, we have, we, have, we have four elders in our church, but I mainly thought of two of our elders, and they're not even here this morning, so I could talk about them. Leo Shu, one of our elders, and Brian Berkey. Leo Shu was an atheist, outright atheist, who thought Christians were just stupid and idiots. And he decided to, because of some relationships and friendships he had in high school, he wanted to go, who were Christian, he wanted to go to their youth group and basically make the youth pastor look like idiots and fools. So he wanted to just go and debate with these youth pastors. That was his mission, almost like Saul, not wanting to kill the youth pastor, but to debate him and make him look like an idiot and a fool. And that's what he did. And it wasn't an intellectual debate, but as he tried to engage them and make them feel like idiots, it was these youth pastors that just loved him, that invited him into their home, built a relationship with them, and it's through that that he became a follower of Jesus. And so when you look at it, it wasn't the moment of conversion, but it was through those relationships, those high school friends that were believers that invited him to youth group where God met him even earlier on, 5, 10 years, 15 years before, because of those relationships that were forged, that he began to step into a youth group and met the living Savior. Brian Berkey, he was agnostic, not a follower of Jesus. And it was because of a friend who invited him to a youth group in high school, And because of that friendship where God used this brother in Christ to bring him to church, to hear the gospel, he became a follower of Jesus. You see, you might be in a place where you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus. You are other than Christian. And you are sitting here. Well, God has already began that work, initiating with you, pursuing you to even be where you are today. This is how transformation and conversion begins. It's God's initiative. It's never ours. Look at, the old, look at the scriptures. God is the one who meets Abraham. God is the one who meets Moses. God's the one who calls the disciples while they're at work in their vocation as tax collectors, fishermen. And what does Jesus do? He comes to them in their place and initiates relationship. It's not because of who we are, what we've done, how smart we are, the kind of jobs we have that make us good enough to change. You could be a murderer against God. And because of who God is, he initiates with you first. That is always the case when transformation happens. But secondly, we see God's self-revelation. God's self-revelation. It's amazing as there's this blinding light and Saul hears Jesus speak, why are you persecuting me? Saul asks, who are you, Lord? And what does Jesus say? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. With Jesus' response in revealing who he is, Saul realizes that he has been very, very wrong about Jesus. And what that means is that he has been wrong about who God was, about the world he lived in, and even about himself and who he was. He thought Jesus was dead. He thought he was just this crazy man who was not the Messiah. But with Jesus' voice and initiating with him, he had to rethink and reevaluate everything about who God was, right? Leslie Newbegin, in his book, Foolishness to the Greeks, this is what he writes. He says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Those words, it showed Paul. That his most passionate and all conquering conviction was wrong. That who he thought or what he thinks is a service of God is fighting against God. That he is required to stop in his tracks, turn around, and renounce the whole direction of his life, to love what he had hated, and to cherish what he had sought to destroy. Another way to say this is that Saul had to relearn who God was, what this world was about, and who He was. What it meant was He had to undo everything and learn who this real God was that He thought He believed in. You see, when we come to this kind of transformation and change and conversion, we can't just create a God in whom we think we want. Otherwise, He's just a personal cheerleader for us if we just want a God who is loving and condones everything I do and is and and approves of everything I believe in and hold to that's just a cheerleader or a personal assistant but we have to be confronted with the God of who he is as Saul was he had to reevaluate all of his priorities he had to rethink the whole Old Testament and New Testament And come to a place where he knew the God that was telling him who he was. I think in our current culture, one of the things that we're doing, and which is a good thing in our Western world, is we are deconstructing our faith, right? Maybe you yourself is doing that, or maybe you have friends or family that are deconstructing their faith. As we're faced with all of these different social issues, as we think about the abuse in the church, maybe legalism that you face, and pastors that have fallen to the wayside, you're really struggling to think, what do I believe and what I believed over all these years is true. Deconstructing is fine and it's good for us to be able to internalize what we actually believe and to be be able to confront the God that reveals Himself to be who He is. But one of the dangers we can come to face with is that as we rebuild what we think is Christianity, Jesus can be easily missed, and not even in the picture or in the faith that you rebuild. And I've seen that with those who are re reconstructing their faith. It is easy to leave Jesus out. But as we deconstruct and reconstruct, we have to be able to come to face with the Jesus in who He reveals Himself to be, in His teachings, in His ethics. In the ways that he dealt with people, in the, in the way that he revealed himself, are we willing to confront the God who reveals himself? Or are we willing to rip out the pages we don't like? To construct a faith that is just our own personal thing that we think is beautiful, but isn't the way, in the way that Jesus has re- revealed himself? See, part of this change isn't just that God initiates with us but he also reveals who he is, not on our terms, but on his. Third, we see God's grace. Look at verse 6. Here you think about Saul who's going to just destroy and kill Jesus' followers. And look what Jesus says to Saul in verse 6. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. You know what's amazing about that? It might just seem like mundane directions, right? Of what, you, what Saul has to go do. But imagine what this meant for Saul. This gave him future hope. His life was not done. God could have easily destroyed him. And brought about the consequences that he rightfully deserved. But what does Jesus say to him? Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This is God's grace for you and for me. Saul had a future and a hope that God was going to finish the good work that he has begun in him. And that is true for you and for me. This is the grace of God that we need. Saul wasn't a good man. He was evil. He was absolutely evil. And yet God's grace allows him to have a future and to be able to be transformed and changed and bring about transformation in where God would call him to do. One pastor said it this way, Jesus, the victim of Saul's crimes, forgives him. Even before Saul could ask for it, Or even dream of what he could receive. This is the beautiful, beautiful promise that is ours. We have a future. We have a hope that God can change us. Not just leave us in how we are or we were. But he wants to make us whole. He wants to make us better. He wants to change us and transform us from the inside out. So we might be used for his glory. And that's what he does, right? In verse 15, 16, we'll look at that. But he tells this man, Ananias, Go, for Paul or Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Do you believe that you can be redeemed? Do you believe that you can be changed? I struggle myself with a judgmental heart. I am absolutely critical of myself and of others. I struggle to pray because I am so self-reliant on my own strengths and my own gifts. But here, what I need to believe in myself is that there is hope. There is a future glory. There is a future hope that I am going to be used not only for the benefit of growing to become more like Christ, but that He will use me despite of my faults and despite of my sin and despite of my inadequacies, that He's making me more like Christ so I could be a blessing to others. I have to remember this, and so do you. This is God's grace for us. He doesn't just leave you as you are, but He changes us through His grace. The last thing we see here is that change and conversion comes through God's family. There's this dream within a dream that we see happen here, right? Because God comes to this man named Ananias and he tells him, Saul has had a dream that you are going to come to him to be able to tell him what to do. And so Ananias is wrestling with this. Look look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Ananias, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now how does Ananias respond in verse 13? But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, what he's saying is, uh, God, nope. I, I know, I, I, we all have heard about Saul. His reputation precedes him wherever he goes. This dude is evil and wicked and and." Binds, and he's got this letter, this edict to bind all the Christians in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem to be, to be brought up on trumped up charges and to kill them like Stephen. Uh, I think you got the wrong soldier. or you got the wrong dude to go do this. And the other thing I think Ananias, by responding to God in this way, is saying, is asking the question that I began with today. Do people really change? God, have you really changed Saul's life? Like, is he truly a follower of Jesus now? How can I believe that? And that's a question for you and I to wrestle with in the family of God. Have you lost the wonder of God's grace that brings about transformation in one another's lives? Maybe we're like Ananias. Unsure if God's grace is powerful enough to bring about change. Do you believe that God's spirit can do this kind of work? Do people really change? And Ananias had to confront that question. And he's willing to bet on that. And he goes. He goes to this house on Straight Street, to the home of Judas. And how does he respond? Or what are the first words he utters to Saul, who's been a murderer, who's killed his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? He says, Brother Saul. Brother. Can you imagine that? This man who has been an enemy to Christians. The first words he utters is brother. And the first words Saul hears is brother. Imagine all the shame he carried. Imagine his own broken identity. And having to confront someone that he was killing, their family. The first words he hears is one of identity. One of relationship. That locates him and says, you are a brother now in Christ. No longer a murderer, no longer a killer, no longer an enemy, but a brother of mine. Even when the worst is known. Love is always offered again and again and again. And the only reason Ananias can do this is because he realizes and he has experienced and is reminded that this is my story too. God has initiated with Ananias. God has revealed himself to Ananias. God has given him the grace to change Ananias' life. And God has brought him into the family of God. Despite of his sins, despite of his inadequacies, God has accepted him and called him his son and a prince in the family of God. So as Ananias reminds himself of the gospel, he then has the courage and the strength and the faith to say, Saul, you are a brother now to me. That is the power of family, and that is the power of the Christian family. Despite of our failures, despite of our weaknesses, despite of whatever you have done, even when the worst is known, love can be offered in the family of God because love has been offered ultimately by our Creator, our God, the one that we spit on, the one we rebel against, the one we betray, the one that we hate at moments. He offers his love and calls us sons and daughters. He calls us prince and princes of the king. This is our identity. And no matter what we disagree on, no matter what you have done in your past, no matter you vote Democrat next year, whether you vote Republican or you don't vote at all, we're family. Because of the beautiful gospel story that we saw here in what Jesus did for Saul. And that's why we can be brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the scandal of the gospel. That's the scandal of the gospel. And that's what transformation, true change looks like. It's not something that we do. Listen here, this is so important. Christianity isn't something that we do. No. Christianity, the gospel, is something that's done to us. And because it's something that's done to us, that's why change happens. It's not a behavior modification. It's not 10 steps to a better life. But what Christianity offers, each and every single person, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, if you place your faith in Him, He changes you from the inside out. This is God's work alone that He does for you and for me. In Ted Lasso, the final words about whether people change or not is this. This one, this one staff member says this. Human beings are never going to be perfect. The best we can do is keep asking for help and accepting it when we can. And if you keep on doing that, you'll always be moving towards better. Obviously, in this world's view, this is absolutely as far as we can take it. We're not perfect. And all we can do is just continue to get better and better. But in the Christian worldview, guess what we have? We have someone who was perfect, who lived the perfect life. And because of His perfect work and His perfect sacrifice and His perfect love and His perfect acceptance of us, we can actually lean on him, rest upon him, place all our faith and weight upon him and know that because of his perfection, God is going to change us by his spirit and make us perfect like him. And that is our ultimate hope in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this beautiful reminder of the gospel that has nothing that we can do something that we have done or haven't done, or something that we will do, but only because of what Jesus has done for us. You initiated with us. You're the one who pursued us. You're the one who loved us infinitely. You're the one who revealed yourself to us. You're the one who has given us the grace to change, and you have brought us into the family. And so, Lord, I pray that you would not only remind us of these truths, but that you would strengthen us here at the table now. Feed us strengthen us so that even as we go into this week in our failures in our inadequacies lord help us to be able to put our faith and trust in you and know that you are making us more like you every single day we pray all of these things in jesus name amen